Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is coming to you on November 7th. 2016, the day before the American presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and in some places, Gary Johnson and Dr. Jill Stein. So what else could we possibly talk about than Madam President's plural? Yeah, that's right. I, As we were going over the notes for this episode, I was thinking about how normal it had always seemed to me uh, growing up and even now as an adult, even now as an adult, um, that women would lead other countries. I mean, I grew up reading about female world leaders, presidents, prime ministers, things like that, queens. Um, so it just never seemed strange. Where it seemed strange was when we came back to this country and we had never had uh, a female president. And it's not shocking to me that it's taken a, a woman this long to get an office in this country. Um, but the idea itself to me in general just isn't that strange. Uh, well, yeah, it's not strange at all. Women are completely capable of leading nations and governments, period. But I like how you are speaking as though Madam President Hillary Clinton already exists. Yeah. So um, I got in my time machine for this episode. Right, right. Uh, you know, and honestly, it's been such uh, to to use a word that we often <laughs> disparage on the podcast. It's been such a hysterical election season, especially the past few weeks that I I'm honestly just bracing myself until November 9th uh, when Trump supporters, I hope you go out and vote in mass um, uh, because. No, no, no. His voters are going out the 28th. Uh, the 9th to 28th yeah. is totally fine. You can do early voting on the 9th. You can wait until the day of on the 28th. <laughs> I don't care. The 28th is my birthday. That is an amazing <laughs> birthday present. Um, but I am just bracing myself until the deal is done. So I'm, I'm thankful for your, your optimism and ensure assuredness. That this is happening. Well, my strategy for surviving this has been to tune out cable news, the 24-hour news networks, all of them uh, equally. Um, my boyfriend nonstop when he is home has CNN on, and I just can't take it. It's punishing. It is, it is punishing. And I don't want to, it would be one thing if I were watching or listening to some sort of news outlet that was Literally giving me the news, giving me the facts I needed, giving me policy, giving me, you know, things that could help me as a voter in general, make up my mind, decide how I feel about all sorts of candidates, not just the two people running for president. Um, but that is not the case with the American cable news system, and I just can't deal with it. So I get on Twitter and where I follow a lot of really smart, funny people, and I get to to read jokes. And then when it becomes too intense, I just log off of Twitter, too. Yeah. Maybe pour myself a, a little bit of a champagne cocktail. But the fact of the matter is, it is so hard to become a female president, whether in the United States or anywhere. Because you and I grew up when Thatcher was, eh, she was kind of fading out, but she was still around. And uh, as we're going to learn, becoming a female prime minister, while challenging, yes, uh, is not as hard yeah. as becoming a president. I had no idea about this. Me neither. And I had no idea about the, the very gendered aspects of that, I mean, aside from like, you know, sexism, period. But it is so interesting to learn about the things that tip the office of president and prime minister in favor of men or women. Yeah. And it also offers a more global understanding of where we stand in terms of gender and perception and sexism and leadership. And maybe a good place to start would be in Australia. Hello, Australian listeners. I hope we can see you face to face one day because I've never been to Australia and would really like to go. Um, and Australia 
had its first and still only female prime minister a few years back, Julia Gillard. And she became famous worldwide with something called uh, the misogyny speech. It actually has its own Wikipedia entry. The misogyny speech does. Um, and I suggested to Caroline before she started diving into a lot of uh, the more depressing research on women in politics that she watched this 15-minute speech that Gillard delivers on the parliamentary floor directly to the leader of the opposition, Tony Abbott, who would later become prime minister, calling out sexism and misogyny. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And first of all, I would just like to say that Australians, your uh, parliament is way more interesting than watching the U.S. Congress do its work. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you get to yell at each other and holler when people are talking. So often you just hear politicians toe the line and, you know, be nervous about calling out things like sexism and misogyny directly. But Australia's former PM did it. Yeah, she had had enough. And uh, just for a quick backstory, she had spearheaded this carbon tax that apparently she, you know, said she wasn't going to be in favor of. She ended up backing it. Um, Australians listening, if, if I need to, if you need to fill me in on the details, please do. But it sparked this nasty political debate that was filled with all sorts of sexist rhetoric that was condoned by opposition leader Tony Abbott. And there was this other incident that came up uh, with Gillard's party where this guy, um, Fred Slipper, which is just a fabulous name, uh, Mr. Slipper, uh, had had sent uh, some unsavory text messages, uh, like jokey, you know, those awful sexist emails that, you know, that your unfortunate uncle sends along and thinks that you'll laugh at. Um, so he got caught sending those. And so Tony Abbott stands up and is like, I will not stand for this. And Gillard is like, oh, oh, suddenly you're you're calling out sexism. So uh, in October 2012, she gets up and just drags Abbott for 15 minutes on the parliamentary floor, figuratively speaking, um, <sighs> kicking things off, saying, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. If he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. Uber. And then you hear, you know, some of her supporters yell out and echo, a mirror, yes. Get him a mirror. Get him a mirror. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. Oh, because also, too, consider that. This same guy, Tony Abbott, on parliamentary floor once said that Gillard, who uh, is unmarried and child free, should, quote, make an honest woman of herself. I mean, this woman had just been essentially absorbing all of this sexism and she had had enough. Yeah, people have been holding signs outside of parliament calling her a bitch and a witch. And who was it? Was it Abbott who said that she should be just put in a bag and thrown into the ocean? And she's like, ha ha, jokes on you. Witches don't drown. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, she talk about a nasty woman. Um, she <laughs> she is one. And she wrote an open letter in The New York Times uh, earlier this year to fellow nasty woman Hillary Clinton and talked about, quote, the curious question of gender and the fact that we often refuse to just like call a spade a spade when it comes to women in politics to identify sexism and the whole likability trap and the nonsense of pulling the woman card if you do call out sexism. Um, and she encouraged uh, the electorate to similarly, you know, hold people accountable. Now, of course, I don't know, maybe like half the population listened. But uh, <laughs> I feel like that's that's a good place to start, because to me, that misogyny speech encapsulates all of all of the rage um, of the barriers, the invisible barriers that still prevent women from becoming president in particular. But I mean, but I am talking about a female prime minister 
And like you said, Caroline, at the top of the podcast, like it wasn't a foreign idea to you that women could lead nations. So I mean, it can't be all that bad, right? Is it just in the United States? (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's it's not all that bad, sort of. Um, As of July of this year, 2016, more than 70 countries have had at least one female president or prime minister. I mean, if you look at Nepal, Croatia, Turkey, Bangladesh, New Zealand, Mozambique, on and on. And some of you listeners out there might remember Croatia's president, Kolinda Graber-Katarovic, from uh, an episode of Samantha Bee, where she talks about how after she was elected, uh, people went nuts posting bikini pictures online that were supposed to be of her, but they were not. And the hilarious twist uh, is that they were actually of Coco, uh, Ice-T's wife from I Love Coco. Uh, yeah. Anywho. Well, and it's worth noting, too, that she was is Croatia's first pre- female president. Yeah. So <laughs> welcome to the presidency. Everyone is objectifying you. Okay. And she tells Samantha B in that segment about how it does not feel great to know that there are people actively sexually objectifying you, as you might imagine. Yeah. And I mean, there's this idea that we have heard from. I mean, this is obviously not just a female president thing, but any women in leadership roles at all of like, hopefully I'm making it better for the women who come after me. But it is horrifying when you stop and think about what these women have to endure just to lead a country and try to get the job done. And one thing to keep in mind, too, when we see all of these listicles that really began circulating even more um, during this election of all of the places in the world that have had female leaders outside the United States. But you got to keep in mind that those numbers are slightly deceptive because, as CNN reported, Many countries' female leaders were in office for, at times, just a few days, often less than a year, or just serving as interim president. For instance, in Ecuador, Rosalia Arteaga Serrano served as acting president for two days. Two days. I mean, that's that's like a nice little weekend. I know. I, I'd be down with taking like a two-day presidency. <laughs> that's it. And then just hop out. I don't know. Can I do it for like six hours? Oh, okay. Honestly, because yeah. I want to be out in time for happy hour. Yeah, not, not even a full nine to five. No, <laughs> no. If, if I can be out of there by four to go ahead and, and, and get you a cocktail. I think they bring you cocktails, though, when you're the president. So can I just drink it under the desk then and hide from people who want things from me? I'm sure you wouldn't be the first president to do that. I am not like cut out to be president, I think, which is why these women are so impressive. (laughs) But another part, too, is not only have a lot of these female leaders been in office for just short snippets of time, usually more than my little six hour stint that I'm envisioning. (laughs) Your six hour booze cruise. Yeah, uh, sounds like a regular Thursday. Um, but most of those 70 countries that we just mentioned have had only one female president or prime minister. Uh, when you look back at Argentina, for example, uh, they are an outlier, actually, in, in the whole list of countries that have had female leaders. Uh, they've had both Isabel Perón and Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner serving in the role of president. But you've got to note, too, that Perón took over from her husband, who died in office, and she was ousted by a coup. So, see, I mean, <laughs> why why you got to have coups? Why, you know. <laughs> right? Why you got to have coups? Why you got to have coups? <laughs> um, but but th- that's an interesting thing to note. I mean, does that have anything to do with the glass cliff effect that we talked about in our episode on failure? And perfectionism? Yeah, it absolutely could. And and we'll get into that a little bit more. But a, a lot of times women end up leading nations when times are the most unstable, similar to female CEOs being brought in when a company is on the verge of collapse. Because research uh, from Harvard and elsewhere has found that we perceive women to be better leaders during those times of crisis because of our 
nurturing and our coalition building. So they want us to be nurturers and coalition builders, but then they post bikini, fake bikini shots of us online? Well, sure. I mean, if you can also, like, be sexy, that's like a two for one, right? But then it's just used against us. Ah. Yeah, I don't like playing devil's advocate <laughs> to the sexual objectifier <laughs> of Croatian presidents. Um, and also, too, we have to keep in mind, like, how the number of female state leaders relates to the actual power that we wield worldwide. So according to the United Nations, currently not counting figurehead monarchs like Queen Elizabeth, we have 18 female world leaders, including 12 heads of government and 11 elected heads of state. And in rough terms, this is based on 2013 data, um, so it might give or take a little bit, but women account for just around 7% of all national leaders and hold just 2% of all presidential posts. And while those numbers are not exciting, <laughs> they represent <laughs> massive growth since the 1960s because we were eh, pretty much starting from nothing before 1960. Well, yeah, and when you do go back to 1960, you have Sri Lanka's Sirimavo Bandra Naiki, who became the first female head of government in the modern world. But, and this is pretty common, she was actually taking over for her dead husband amid a whole bunch of democratic upheaval in the country, and she ended up losing her position several times. She served from 1960 to 65, and then 1970 to 77, and then 1994 to 2000. And in the meantime, the opposition party amped up the presidential power. She was prime minister, but they had dis- uh, dispersed power. They also have a president. Um, and so the opposition party gave more power to the president in a way to kind of rein her in. Um, but you also see the power of nepotism, A, because she's taking over from uh, her husband. And you have her daughter, Shandrika Kumaratunga, being appointed president from 94 to 2005 by the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, which, though, her husband, who is also a former prime minister, founded. So it does help if you are a woman who wants to have the highest office in the land, if you are related to a man who has had the highest office in the land. And the next two ladies that we're going to talk about... um were two of the women that I was sort of thinking of when I mentioned the fact that I grew up, thanks to my history teachers, uh, being very familiar with the idea that women could exercise power around the world. Uh, in 1966, Indira Gandhi became India's third prime minister and first and only woman so far elected to the post. And again, uh, being related to someone previously in power comes into play. She was the daughter of Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister. And Gandhi served three consecutive and controversial terms between 1966 and 77. And she came back after stepping away uh, in 1980 to 1984. But her bodyguards assassinated her in 1984. So not a good end for Indira Gandhi. But then in the meantime, in 1969, you get Golda Meir, who was a founder, one of the founders of the state of Israel, and was its fourth prime minister from 1969 to 1974. And uh, Mayer attempted to broker a peace deal in the Middle East uh, until the October 1973 Yom Kippur War. Um, and I, I think that she's an interesting character. There's a quote about her from the Jewish Women's Archive where they say that Meyer chose not to be woman identified and behaved as if gender doesn't matter. And and that really, to me, reminded me of our episode that we did on Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, I mean, they're both iron ladies. Yeah. Uh, and kind of have to, feeling like they had to desex themselves in order to be perceived as powerful. And also like Margaret Thatcher, Mayer wasn't exactly 
an unabashed women's rights advocate. Um, and the closest she came to really acknowledging the existence of sexism was this bit in her autobiography when she s- says that uh, at one point David Ben-Gurion called her the only man in his cabinet. And she wrote, what amused me about it was that obviously he or whoever invented the story thought that this was the greatest possible compliment that could be paid to a woman. I very much doubted that any man would have been flattered if I had said about him that he was the only woman in the government. Gender is a funny thing. Such a funny thing. But she, I mean, she was wielding it, though, to her advantage, similar to... Iron Lady number two, old Margaret, I know nothing to women's lib, quote, Thatcher, who uh, became British prime minister in 1979. And we did uh, a whole episode, well, most of an episode on her. We were talking about whether um, female leaders are necessarily good for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of Margaret Thatcher, the answer is not always. Uh, but she was prime minister until 1990. And just as an example of how Thatcher was certainly not out to start some kind of feminist revolution, she appointed just one woman to her cabinet during that entire time. Yeah, I think she would be an example of someone who is not lifting as she climbed. She's more pulling the ladder up behind her as she climbs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although we now have uh, Prime Minister Theresa May and talk about a glass <laughs> cliff situation, yeah. you know, because she became Prime Minister um, on the heels of the Brexit vote. And I do not envy her one bit. No, but you said the key word there, or I guess key set of words, uh, which would be Prime Minister. Um most of the women that we've discussed so far have not been president. They have been prime minister. And there are some interesting gender expectations at play there. Yeah. So while, yes, Siramavo Bandaranaki in 1960 did become the first female head of government in the modern world, it's not until 1980 that we get the first democratically elected female president in the same similar kind of situation that we have going on here in the United States. Yeah. Hey, Vigdis. What up, Vigdis? Vigdis Finbug dot here. I'm sorry. I'm American. That's like the best I can do. I think you did great. Thank you. She's in Iceland. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure she got some shout outs in our podcast a while back on oh, heck yeah. Iceland's women's strike. But that's crazy, though. I mean, it took the world until 1980 to get its first democratically elected lady pres. And not terribly surprising that it's in a small, small country and a relatively progressive, gender progressive country. Yeah, and she actually was in office until 1996, which makes her the longest-serving elected female head of state ever. And she paid a lot of attention to that role-modeling effect. You know, she didn't let her pioneering and trailblazing status uh, fall to the side. One thing Finn Bogdatier said was, quote, I'm also glad that I've been able to help give women self-confidence in Iceland. They come to me and they say, for all of these years, you've been a role model for me. They tell me they think if she could do it, I can do it. This makes me very happy. (laughs) And you know what? Vigdis makes me very happy, Caroline. I know. And another woman who makes us very happy, as should be evident if you do go back and listen to our episode about women striking in Iceland, is Johanna Sigurdatir, uh, who was Iceland's first female prime minister from 2009 to 2013 and the world's first openly gay female head of state. Iceland. All the snaps. I know. I was just snapping in my head, too. <laughs> uh, I've, you know, I've got a sassy, as I sit here, a sassy hand on my hip, and I am snapping in my head, moving my head like I'm snapping. Um, now, right after Vigdis comes into office, their Norwegian neighbor in 1981 gets its first female prime minister with Dr. Gro Harlem Brundtland, and she stayed in office less than a year, and then came back and served from 86 to 89, and then from 90 to 96 when she resigned. And listen, 
rad prime minister alert <laughs> because Brundtland became known for appointing women to her cabinet. She did not pull a Maggie Thatcher. Mm-mm. Nope. Eight out of the 18 positions she appointed were to women. Um, and she's also nicknamed the mother of sustainability and has led so many environmental efforts, including becoming the director general of the World Health Organization and chairman of the UN Commission on the Environment in October 1984. So, uh, Dr. Grow, love it. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great name for someone who's an environmentalist. Yes, and also advocating for women. Yeah. Grow it all. <laughs> Don't know how to do a Norwegian accent. I wish I did, Norwegian listeners. I know you're out there. Um, and in 1986, when I was but a child of three, uh, Corazon Aquino becomes the Philippines' first female president thanks to the People Power Revolution. And she also, by the way, was Time Magazine's Woman of the Year. Yeah, we could devote a whole episode to her because um, her life and work is pretty incredible. But I will just give you this snippet from that Time Magazine Person of the Year article in which they described her as, quote, a widowed housewife who avenged her husband's death by overthrowing the regime widely blamed for his murder. Dang, talk about some Z-snaps going on in my head now. I would watch... A movie version of that, like, I mean, obviously of her life, I would totally watch uh, a Corazon biopic. But I also want to, like, see that set as kind of a Game of Thrones storyline where she, like, comes in on a horse with a sword. I will avenge my husband. Um, Kickstart it. There you go. And in 1988, yet another woman who comes up in my mind when I think about my high school history classes and government classes is Benazir Bhutto. Uh, She became the first democratically elected female leader of an Islamic nation, Pakistan. She served from 88 to 90 and 93 to 96. But much like Indira Gandhi, she did not have a happy end. Uh, She was actually assassinated in 2007 while running for a third term as prime minister. And I had to blink for a minute because I totally thought she had died earlier. Um, and I might have mixed her up in my head with Indira Gandhi in that regard. Um, but I, I do remember learning about her in high school and being like, yeah, yeah, women can can kick ass as leaders. Well, I distinctly remember Benazir Bhutto's assassination because that was the first time that I ever heard the words Afghan Taliban because she was killed by members of the Taliban. And she often had to flee, you know, and and, uh, because, first of all, like the presidents who were in power while she was prime minister typically weren't fans of her. Um, That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. It's it's all coming back to me now. Um, And she would also be one who would make for a, a terrific podcast because um, there were a number of articles we were reading about her role modeling effect just by virtue of being a female leader in uh, an Islamic nation. She was considered the daughter of Pakistan and how inspirational she continues to be for a lot of uh, Pakistani women. Um, and one piece that I was reading was uh, essentially mourning the fact that um, that she's not, not there anymore to inspire girls who weren't alive when she was in power. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention, she faced a ton of turmoil in order to become prime minister at <laughs> the ripe age of 35. Um, her dad, for instance, was formerly a prime minister. There again, we have the, the family effect. Um, but he was assassinated and she was constantly in and out of jail. Um, when her dad was assassinated, she, I want to say she and her mom were also captured and they weren't allowed to go to his funeral. Uh, sort of as a form of punishment. Um, and so she would also be under house arrest. She would go into exile. But she kept coming back, you mm-hmm. know. So, I mean, talk about a fighter. 
Well, and we see another fighter in Ireland's Mary Robinson. She was in office from 1990 to 1997 as the country's first female president and defying the trend generally worldwide of having one female leader at a time. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, not back to back is what I mean. Her successor was not only another woman, but it was another Mary, Mary McAleese. And that's so rare. Uh, Yeah. What are the odds of back to back Marys? Well, but Robinson supported birth control and gay rights in Ireland. And she said, I was elected by the women of Ireland who, instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. And we didn't have time to uh, go off on a little bit of a research tangent. So I am hoping that we'll hear from some Irish listeners who might be able to fill us in on this because I was surprised to see uh, more of a a pro woman uh, president considering how Ireland is having so many issues with reproductive rights and abortion not being legal there. Um, so I, I, I wonder if she was pro-birth control but not pro-abortion or maybe she was both and just didn't have the support. Um, yeah, fill us in, listeners, if you know. Well, Kristen, I have a, a TV question for you. Have you watched the new, the new, new Tracy Ullman show? That's no. on? No, no. I have not watched the new new. Um, I ask this because she does an incredible Angela Merkel character. It's it's Angela Merkel. She's doing an impression of her. And it's... I might have laughed until there were tears in my eyes uh, at her characterization of Angela Merkel. Uh, she is quite the powerhouse. Oh, totally. Uh, she became, in 2005... Germany's first female chancellor. Um, also, did you know that she has a background in physics? Um, I learned that as we were researching for this episode. Yeah, me too. Uh, why doesn't she tout that more often? <laughs> like, D- what, should she just like wear a lab coat and carry a beaker around? She should just say uh, something on the, the back of her uh, her blazers. Hey, P.S., I have a background in physics, so I'm probably smarter than you. Um, <laughs> and since 2005, though, she has remained chancellor. She's also served as the president of the European Council in 2007. Yes, I said 2007. <laughs> 20- Deal with it. 20-0-7. And she served as the chair of the G8. And meanwhile, she has become a key leader in the European Union. And that's one reason that Time Magazine named her its 2016 Person of the Year. And (laughs) pretty much uh, if you want to become Forbes Magazine's Most Powerful Woman of the Year, uh, you're going to have to go toe-to-toe with Merkel because she has held that title for six years running. And um, one of the reasons, going back to time, though, that she uh, received that honor was because of her handling of the Syrian refugee crisis, even though it has caused... Um, you know, some issues stateside German listeners. I'm also curious to hear from you um, how beloved Merkel is, because I know that more conservative politicians have been putting more heat on her. Um, so I'm curious if uh, if her chancellorship might be coming to an end sometime soon. Hmm. Um, but uh, just FYI, while campaigning for her third term, Merkel said that she did not identify as a feminist. But don't worry, y'all. She then like uh, had tea with Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift and they just like hash everything out. <laughs> no, um, she probably did that because she would have alienated conservative voters. Yeah, but she's been lately more outspoken. Yeah. And I say lately, I don't mean necessarily like this week, but she has lately been more outspoken about women's rights and giving women a platform and a, and a leg up. Yeah. And you all know how we feel about that question, uh, the the question to celebrities and even heads of state of, are you a feminist? Yes or no? No context of what it might mean. Just give us something that we can make a headline out of. Yeah. If if. No one asks Sarah Jessica Parker if she's a feminist ever again. I can die happy. Just stop asking her, please. And if we jump a year after Angela Merkel became Germany's first chancellor, first female chancellor, <laughs> sorry, um, we get to a badass economist and former finance minister and Nobel Prize winner, 
Ellen Sirleaf Johnson. She became Liberia's and really all of Africa's first female president. Um, she was also nicknamed the Iron Lady, which makes me wonder, y'all. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think we're on the same page. <laughs> um, we have one nickname for women in power that we respect, and it's an Iron Lady. If there isn't a lot of gendered messaging just packed into that. You're right. Are you going to say that they should be called Iron Maiden instead? I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't, but now I am. No, I, I, Conger, I totally agree with you. As I was reading, I thought the same thing. As I was going through sources, I was like, wait, 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 wait. We're calling yet another woman Iron Lady? Yeah. Do you just mean that this is a, a woman human who exercises power to me the iron says that she has the tough masculinity to get the job done but the lady means she puts doilies everywhere (laughs) means that she is still likable enough yeah you know she hasn't completely de-sexed herself even though golda like that was kind of her intention well but it's a weird qualifier it's like when people feel the need to say uh, female firefighter or male nurse. It's like, or you could just say firefighter or nurse. It's kind of the same thing. You could just say she's the president or she's a tough leader or she's a powerful leader of a country. I feel like why do we need to continue giving women heads of state nicknames like Iron Lady? And only Iron Lady. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. I don't know of other nicknames. Maybe people in these separate countries aren't talking to each other. They don't realize that it's been done. And also, historically, not, not, I mean, I'm sure that there are presidential and prime, prime ministerial nicknames that, uh, countries will give, uh, their own leaders, like, kind of like as in jokes. But, I'm not immediately recalling um, a lot of similar nicknames for male leaders. You know, it's not like, although who was old Maybe. Hickory? Somebody was old Hickory. Well, that was Andrew Jackson. Yeah, um, and but again, we all know a- we all know what a what a great guy Andrew Jackson was. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Bill Clinton was like the saxophone gentleman. That'll be his name! Uh, his title. <laughs> That'll be the one of the nice things that he's called, unfortunately. Yeah. But let us not diminish uh, the accomplishments of Ellen Sirleaf Johnson, who took over a war-torn country and has had to Literally, like, rebuild Liberia, even in terms of just getting basic necessities like water and power to places. Um, so she's also one who is following the pattern of women coming into power during phases of massive instability. Um, and she's another one who deserves her own podcast because her path to the presidency uh, also included having to go into political exile and almost being killed more than once, I believe, going to Harvard and all sorts of things. Yeah. So uh, quite a, a distinguished list. Uh, she's not someone who would be satisfied with a six hour booze cruise stint of a presidency. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but When we come right back from a quick break, we're going to get into the heart of this discussion, which is why presidencies are so elusive. So one source that we spent a lot of time with in preparation for this episode is a book by Farida Jalalze called Shattered, Cracked, or Firmly Intact, Women and the Executive Glass Ceiling. And Jalalze, in speaking to Vox, said that the fact remains that almost never do women actually win their election contest when they're running for presidencies. And that seems bleak. And that seems to go against all of these things we've been talking about with women being able to attain positions of leadership. Also, she's not just talking about American presidencies. We're talking about anywhere on the planet. Almost never. 
And I would just like to point out, and I mean, we, we kind of said this at the top of the podcast, but reading uh, Jalalzeh's scholarship and her writing on this topic kind of blew my mind. And uh, she pointed out a lot of things I just had not considered. Such as? Well, I mean, just such as in my mind, when I think of female leadership, I had never really separated prime ministers from presidents. I, I had not taken into account how those different and of course those governmental systems work differently. I had just never taken the time to think about how that would affect women in leadership. Right. And differences between heads of state and heads of government and whether you have a shared prime ministership and presidency or like in the United States, you have the sole president and commander in chief. And the president is usually, almost always, the head of government. And because of that, female presidents are simply walking, talking, law enacting, gender norm <laughs> violators. Oh. Yeah. So that's like our podcast mascot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The gender police are about to run out and write her a ticket, except they'd be like, oh, wait, no, we can't because you're president. I don't know how this works. Um, so another person who was talking to Vox about this was Beloit professor Georgia Dwerst Leite, who's also studied um, this curious question of gender and presidencies. And uh, she said, quote, executive power is characterized by unity of command, hierarchical arrangements, and with centralized control, a capacity to act quickly and decisively when circumstances dictate. These factors create circumstances in which women are understood as other in contrast to a masculine norm, and they do so in a way that it's predictable inside gender ideology. Hmm. And you know what this makes me think of, Caroline? How Trump says that Hillary Clinton doesn't have that presidential look. Oh, I mean, to me, that just was him being a jerk and commenting on her appearance. But you're totally right. Um, and you know what? Bells went off in my head when you said the word hierarchical, because that made me think of our episode that we did on mansplaining, where we kind of did a deep dive into gendered communication and the ways that we are sort of socialized to speak and interact and how uh, stereotypically uh, and in general, boys and men are socialized to sort of communicate in a way that exerts a hierarchical structure to say, like, who's who's the main boy in in the group, in the friend group? God, I would love to see a boy say, I'm the main boy. <laughs> I'm the main boy. <laughs> um, yeah, so men tend to speak in a more assertive style. Women tend to speak in a more affiliative style, especially right. in professional context. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, Trump wants to be the main boy. That's all he's ever wanted. Um, but here, here is the thing, too. So Shattered, Cracked, or Firmly Intact, uh, Frida Jalalzai's book, is really a, just a huge study peeling apart why there is this executive gender gap. And she discovered that if you look at male heads of state and female heads of state, women are just as educationally and politically qualified and credentialed to hold executive offices as men. So it's not like women just aren't bringing the right skill sets to the table. Rather, she writes, the gendered nature of executive office still typically promotes men instead of women. So here we have some unconscious bias. Despite their impressive educational backgrounds, professional experience, and associations with politically active families, women remain underrepresented at the highest levels of power everywhere. Everywhere. Because what they are square pegs in a round hole, they don't fit what we think of as someone who is presidential and able to lead. Yeah, I mean, the, it's that gendered nature of executive office promotes men instead of women because of what uh, Darest Lady was saying about how that executive power is so thoroughly masculine gendered. So whether we are conscious of it or not, 
that often is what happens. Although there are some prime conditions for uh, women to reach executive office. Like really, if Hillary had wanted to sail into office, A, that never would have happened because the worst thing about her is that her last name is Clinton, you could argue, even more so than the fact that she has a vagina. Um, but if, say, we were in the depths of uh, the Great Depression, maybe, maybe she'd have an easier time of it because chaos. Um, because chaos, yeah. But but first, but first, what would have really helped is if uh, the United States were a parliamentary system and not a presidential system. Because if you have a parliament, the parties vote for prime minister, whereas the public votes for president. Yes. I mean, think of Justin Trudeau. Everyone's the global crush. Well, I'm sorry. I'm speaking for a, a lot of people, the entire globe. You're speaking for me. I'm mm. definitely speaking for me. Um, like that's, that's how I say we, I want to say we, that's how we wound up with Justin Trudeau. Hi, Canada. We, we have, uh, we love him. We, we think about him often, <laughs> wistfully. Gosh, can you just imagine? He's walked in pride parades, dude. <sighs> what other, <laughs> like, come on. You know who also has? I'm sure I'm not basing this on anything, but other than his radness, I'm sure Obama has. I, and Clinton has too, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. But I mean, I'm just saying, current leaders, Justin Trudeau. Trudat. True, true, true dad. Yeah, so basically the bottom line when it comes to a parliamentary system, as far as women are concerned, is the more dispersed the executive power is, the more conducive it is for women to be leaders. Yeah, and also, too, uh, winning a prime ministership is more of a process of that coalition building and consensus cultivating, which is more feminine coded rather than the more masculine coded knockdown drag out election. So if you are really gunning for a presidency, as long as you're essentially a figurehead, because there are some states where the prime minister holds more power than the president, then, hey, ladies, come on down (laughs) Um, or find a natural disaster or some kind of horrific just cultural or societal collapse and go there because of the glass cliff, because like we've said a number of times now, just As happens in corporations, women are likelier to take power in periods of instability. And we even have stats on this. Yeah. So Pamela Paxton and Melanie Hughes wrote in Women, Politics and Power that 19 percent of women came to power after after a period of political transition. Forty five percent came to power in countries with a recent history of instability and 33 percent after a military takeover. feel like you could argue that this campaign in America itself has been a period of chaos and instability. So. <laughs> right. One would think it would lead it, lend itself quite well to a woman. Leader. Yeah. Maybe, um, I don't know, like Amy Poehler and Jessica Williams should just swoop in and just take everything and become our, our leaders instead. Okay. Um, and Swedish listeners, I'm curious as to whether this stability factor is also why y'all, as gender progressive as you are, have never had a female prime minister. Because that was uh, surprising to me to see, like, in Scandinavia, like, oh, of course you have, oh, no, no. Well, yeah, because like we've talked about, if there's no uh, chaos or upset of the traditional system, the the people, whether you're in a company, a corporation, or voting for a world uh, country's leader, you wouldn't feel the need to mix up the game, yeah. basically, at that stage. Also, nepotism, a huge help. I mean, we've already mentioned that uh, as it applied to Indira Gandhi. Um, in Argentina, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was married to the former president. Um, same thing happened in Guyana with Janet Jagan. And there's even a term called widow's succession, which is that super common practice, both in executive offices, but we also see this all the way down the ballot of uh, women filling their deceased husband's seats. And that was, in the United States at least, that was how women first tiptoed their way into political office. Um, so the first women who uh, 
were in Congress were there because their husbands were there first and died. So it took a while for us to outright elect a woman. Right. But another mark that you can put under Ellen Sirleaf Johnson's coolness column is that she did not is that her leadership did not depend on a male relative. She got in there by virtue of her own general awesomeness. I imagine her coolness column is so long. I know. Um, But get this. Jalalzai found that those political family connections, whether you have uh, a widow's succession or a father who was in office, regardless, those connections are the statistically largest gender gap between male and female political executives. So if you're looking for the factor that separates the two the most, it is that women far and away get into office um, with the help of family more so than men. And I would also say that that is more evidence of uh, the challenge for women and also the sexism that it's like we need we need a dude we're related to to kind of prove like, you know, well, she'll I, be OK. I think that's why it's interesting in this country, because you have George W. Bush becoming president after his father, two men. But Hillary Clinton is getting a lot of criticism and flack based on her husband's role in this country's leadership. Right. Because, you know. A lot of that has to do with Bill Clinton's policy and also his uh, extracurriculars. Yes. Yeah. Um, being a straight up liability for her. And keep in mind, too, how um, George W. was often mocked for being just, you know, George Sr.'s little boy, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that the main boy. <laughs> I'm the main boy. That was actually Jeb Bush. <laughs> crying at home. Um, do you remember when we thought it would be Jeb and Hillary? Do you remember? I do remember. Uh, and he would talk about his guacamole that he made on Sundays. Please clap. Oh. <laughs> I never knew those could be the good old days. Um, but uh, but an interesting gender dynamic there where it right. is a penalty in a way for a guy to take over from his dad. But if you are a woman... That's a leg up for you. Yeah, it's expected. Like, oh, well, a woman needs the extra help of having the family connection. Ooh, but if the man uses the family connection, oh, what's wrong with you? Yeah, you must be weak. Um, but even being one of the most powerful people in your country, if you make it through regardless of family connections or not, and you become the prime minister, president, what have you, that does not inoculate you from sexism. In fact... It might invite even more sexism. Who would have guessed? Everyone uh, listening. And this was something that uh, Dr. Groh over in Norway, uh, Prime Minister Brundtland, wrote about in her autobiography in terms of how she essentially hoped that she would bear the Brundtland, so to speak, <laughs> of the sexism, saying, quote, next time a woman becomes party leader or prime minister of Norway, Maybe many years from now, she will not meet the same problems I had. I have to tolerate, have to live with this uncomfortable atmosphere because I am the first. It's my duty just to tolerate it. Next time, it will be easier for another woman. But then Mm. that's the question. Will there be another woman? And how long will it take? And I don't want to get ahead of myself because next up, we have a Samantha B. montage. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, this episode of Samantha Bee, uh, where she talks to female world leaders, in addition to the frickin' always delightful Madeleine Albright, um, was so interesting, but like so much of what Samantha Bee talks about, also so deeply depressing. Um, she talked to Michelle Bachelet, the Chilean president, who said, I have seen misogyny come down, but it didn't disappear. She did admit that if she shows too much emotion, she's hysterical. And then who can forget? I had actually forgotten about this until Samantha B. brought it up. But who can forget the flack that Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg caught over the uh, footage of her putting her cell phone in her bra? 
she was like what she was like standing on stage there was some event or whatever and she like checked her phone and put it in her shirt and that's not exactly what I would call uncommon for women to do. And she even told Samantha B. she's like, I think they don't know that women just do this. <laughs> well, and before that, she talked about how, especially after she first came into office, when she would go out with her entourage, people would look for the oldest man right. standing next to her and assume that that was the prime minister. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that that story should sound super familiar to women Really, at any walk of life, in any career or industry, I feel like I have heard about that happening to to so many women, um, whether you're walking into, like, the U.N. or a boardroom at a company. And the thing is, we can't stop with just talking about the firsts and the trailblazers and the pioneers, because while important, what is even more telling is whether and when there will be the second Right. And there's been a lot of research in the past few years on this relatively new concept of moral licensing um, and a study on it, uh, which is yet to be published as of this recording, found that, quote, the Obama presidency may have given some whites the perceived moral license to express more critical attitudes about minorities. And anecdotally, I would say, of course it did. Right. You know, racism went through the roof in the United States. Well, not because suddenly people became racist, but because all of a sudden, oh, well, we have a black president. So that means that we can express our racism more Openly, Right. And a lot of it had to do with um, part of the study, which showed that if a and correct me if I'm wrong, if a black person was in a leadership role, people at that company felt like, oh, well, I don't need to hire more black people because, look, a black person has made it to the highest position at this company. Right. We see the trailblazer as a checked box. Um, and the concept of moral licensing is that. Uh, subconsciously or sometimes consciously, uh, we pat ourselves on the back for electing, say, our first female president and have no real interest in electing another because it's like we've been through this. We've elected a female president. Y'all have done it. Okay. So back to business as usual. You know, why do we need to reinvent this wheel? And you see it happen a lot of times. Like we said at the top of the podcast, most of the women who have been heads of state have been the only female heads of state in their country. Well, and is this not something that we've addressed multiple times on the podcast, especially when we talk about women in leadership roles in the business world, about how trickle-down feminism is not really a thing just because you have a woman CEO, just because you have a Marissa Meyer or a Sheryl Sandberg? That does not mean that there is equality in general. That does not mean that we have no more need for feminism, that sexism is over. All that indicates... Well, as we've talked about, that probably indicates that there's been a little bit of chaos and some glass cliff stuff going on. But all that indicates is that that woman was able to get into that position. It does not indicate anything else positive about the company or about our culture. Yeah. I mean, and that in no way is to diminish the powerful a role modeling effect and the the powerful optics of having a black president and our first female president. Absolutely. Um, but we can't then sit down and congratulate ourselves right. and go on. And I predict that similar to what happened during the Obama administration, we are going to see in the next four years, possibly eight, uh, a tidal wave of sexism and misogyny. You know, we ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like so often women on line are already silenced with the refrain of like, what do you have to complain about? You have everything you could possibly need. What are you complaining about inequality for? That doesn't really exist. You're just making it up to victimize yourself. Right. You have a female president. What else do you want? Exactly. You've got a black president. What else could you need? All lives matter. Oh, yeah. It's moral licensing. Yeah. And it allows people who are so inclined to skip over the very real facts that a black leader or a female leader 
uh, does not equate to policies that help you and me, that help the average person who, you know, trying to live his or her life. It does not necessarily mean that the entire group that is represented by that person or presumed to be represented by that person has made great advances socially. And there is one person, one final person, though, from that Samantha B. montage that we should mention, um, who is Hilda Heine, who is the president of the Marshall Islands. And she was the one woman that Samantha B. spoke to who was like, it's great. Like, I really don't get any flack from, uh, you know, the the few people who live in the Marshall Islands um, for being a woman. She's like, yeah, they just they mainly complain about policies. And Samantha B <laughs> is astonished. And she says, how how is that the case? And she says, well, compared to, you know, say your your country, we're just a lot more gender equitable. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So. Listeners, if you're in the United States and you're listening to this podcast when it is coming out, go vote if you haven't already. Uh, and if you're listening to this uh, in the line for voting, good for you. Stay in that line. Um, and we want to hear from you. Uh, we're really hoping to hear from a lot of our international listeners for this as well, because oof. Y'all been watching this wild election season in the U.S. too. Yeah. Um, but we also want to know how all of this relates to the situation where you live. Let me tell you, when I turned in my voter card, when I went to go early vote, I literally skipped to the poll worker who was by the door collecting the cards. I wish I could have seen that. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Well, I have a letter here from a listener who would like to remain anonymous in response to our episode on villainesses, but also in response to an old episode we did on kleptomania. Uh, she says, while listening to your podcast on villains, excellent job with the divine name drop. Thank you. I heard you mention an older episode on kleptomania. Having dealt with an adolescent arrest for stealing and some recent sticky fingers, I was quite intrigued as to what you had to say about the subject. You hit so close to home that you may as well have recorded the episode from my living room. I have a history of being treated for clinical depression with therapy as far back as preschool and started with medication in either the second or third grade. I don't remember what compelled me to steal when I was a young teen, but I will say that I have a sensory processing disorder that went undiagnosed for the first 27 years of my life. As my mom would say, I always looked uncomfortable. Controlling what I was capable of was very important to me, as so many things out of my control were so distressing. While I never made the connection before about control, my psych history, and stealing, it makes a lot of sense as to where the urge came from. Mostly at the time, I was stealing items like beauty products and such. Ironically, the only time I got caught and subsequently arrested was when I was stealing something for someone else. Fast forward 13 years and I find myself stealing the same type of products again. The most recent incident happened so quickly and as soon as I had left the store, I started to cry and panic. I had no idea what compelled me to do such a thing. After listening to the episode, I was able to confirm what my gut has been telling me, that the cause of my recent sticky fingers is distress over a very sudden, sick, and possibly terminal family member. I had never thought of what I was doing as actual kleptomania, but after listening to you both discussing the disorder, it clicked. I intend to bring this up with my mental health care providers and see what I can do to be in control when I find myself compelled to steal. I also want to let it be known that despite a lifetime of dealing with mental health issues, I am a functional member of society while doing a decent job of adulting. I have an advanced degree and work in healthcare. I'm married and I have a wonderful social life. Thanks so much for the reference in your villains episode and for the podcast in general. You two have brought me many hours of enjoyment with one of my favorite self-care activities being a bubble bath and listening to two of my favorite fellow feminists. Well, lady, I am glad that you were able to listen to the episode and get help. Well, I have a letter here about our episode on villainesses with a Maleficent correction, which I believe we received from a few people. So, Sarah writes, 
I wanted to make a point on your coverage of the 2014 Angelina Jolie Maleficent, which I watched while handing out candy this weekend. In the movie, it's not just that Maleficent has her heart broken by a man, which is sad, yes, but as you stated in the episode, it's a kind of blah background story. The man who breaks her heart drugs her and cuts her wings off her back so he can return them to the king she's fighting against, etc., etc., to further his own political career in the human kingdom. Maleficent is drugged and has her body assaulted. She loses her ability to, to fly, and the heart-rending scene where she wakes up from her drugged stupor to find her body mutilated hit me right in the gut. I'm sure I was not alone in reading that assault as rape. I viewed Maleficent's revenge motives as rooted in a woman's attempt to recover her bodily autonomy as well as punish her assailant. I read the 2014 Maleficent with all of the glorious contouring as a story of trauma and recovery, which made Maleficent as a character heartbreakingly relatable. Thank you so much for reminding me of that, Sarah. I watched Maleficent on a plane, which might explain why I didn't recall that part but it's so true and now that you're talking about it I remember that scene and it was heartbreaking indeed and thanks to everybody who sent us your letters and corrections and if you have something to share with us momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send them and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs videos and podcasts with our sources so you can learn even more about Madam Presidents head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 